It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, it's July 16th, 2020. I'm Tal Becker, Senior Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute here in Jerusalem. And this is For Heaven's Sake, a new podcast from Hartman's I Engage project. On each episode of For Heaven's Sake, Doniel Hartman, president of the Institute, and myself break down a contemporary issue of Israeli life. And then Ilana Steinhain, director of Hartman faculty in North America, will explore with us how classical Jewish sources can enrich our understanding of the issue. For Heaven's Sake is not about talking politics or taking sides. It's about trying to articulate the most morally serious versions of the various sides of an argument, whether we agree with them or not, so that we can talk to each other, listen to each other, and strengthen Jewish people. We will focus on the values and ideas underlying an issue, not on their particular political manifestation. Our aim is really to deepen engagement with Israel, to foster greater tolerance and understanding across political and tribal divides, to discover a values consensus wherever possible, and most significantly, to explore what Israel can mean in the life of Jews around the world. So thank you for listening. Let's dive right in. This week, episode three of For Heaven's Sake, Israel and its critics. Doniel, great to be with you again. You know, in, in the last weeks, the, an article by the American Jewish intellectual uh, Peter Beinart really made a bit of a splash, uh, certainly in America. In it, he argues that essentially the two-state solution to the the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is no longer viable and even makes the case that he can no longer support a Jewish state, only a Jewish home, basically. Now, unsurprisingly, this article sparked a lot of debate. Uh, And I think, you know, quite regardless of whether one is sympathetic to the argument or outraged by it or ignoring it, as some in Israel, as many in Israel, I think, are, the... um, it kind of raises a much bigger question, a kind of conceptual issue about how Israel deals with criticism of Israel or of its policies. And and just before we dive in, I kind of wanted to lay out what I see as these two extreme uh, points on the spectrum of this issue. At one extreme, you could say that in a way, the whole idea of Zionism of becoming a sovereign state is that we're no longer dependent on the views uh, on the views of others. It's not just you know, in the words of the the book of Numbers, that we're a nation that dwells alone. But it's more than that. We are a nation who, as long as we're determined that we're doing the right thing, that's the only thing, that's the only thing that matters. Like, you know, David Ben-Gurion famously said, it doesn't matter what the Goyim say, it matters what the Jews do. And somehow it is an expression of our sovereignty that we are, uh, we do what we think is right and what others say, it doesn't matter. And then at the other end of the spectrum is this kind of vision of Israel as a light unto the nations. Uh, This idea that what other people say has to matter because part of our role, part of our returning to history at some level, is really about being an inspiration, 
a model for the rest of the world, if you put this in Jewish terms being a sanctification of, of God's name, a Kiddush Hashem. And as such, you know, we have this obligation uh, to take account not just of what we do, but of how what we do is perceived by others, because part of our mission is about who we are and how we are seen as who we are. And in that view, sometimes even if the criticism is kind of self-interested or even hypocritical, it somehow matters because we're, we're still failing in making people see through us some kind of broader idea. So I, I wanted to start, Daniel, maybe even before we talk about the, the points along that spectrum, to ask you to make the case, you know, in the, in the spirit of for heaven's sake first, for, for why Israel should take criticism seriously, maybe even regardless of its origins. doesn't matter who's giving the criticism. It can be a hypocritical criticism. It can be a country that's got a terrible record. It can be Jews who are disconnected. Uh, but what matters is what they're saying, not why they're saying it or, or anything else. What do you think? Hi, Carl. Nice to be with you. I think we have to go back to the core place of criticism in the Jewish tradition. There's a line that's not as widely known where the rabbis say that, you know why Jerusalem was destroyed? Not because of senseless hatred. Jerusalem was destroyed because we didn't criticize each other. <laughs> it's another one. It's now, one of the fundamental questions about any human enterprise or one of the most fundamental challenges of any human enterprise is to recognize your humanity. And by recognizing your humanity, you recognize the potential not even the potential, the inevitability of making mistakes. One of the purposes of a civilized environment is to watch out for each other. In our tradition, criticism is an act of love because I, I, I care for you. I care what your life, what you're doing. Now, the question is whether we, are, we see ourselves as Jews as part of a community of nations. And I think part of the core decision of Zionism was not to be a nation unto ourselves. After the Holocaust, we could have checked out from history and said, I'm done. The same Jew who leaves Auschwitz and has children says, I'm not giving up on life. The Jewish people who returned to sovereignty said, I'm not giving up on the world. The world is still relevant to me. And I want, I want the world to vote, to vote my nation into existence. There is a world within which I function. Yeah. Now, that world might, at times, I have to learn how to survive it, and it might be dangerous, and it might be anti-Semitic and anti-Zionist. It might be a crappy world. But the decision of the Jewish people not to disappear, but to return to the arena of history, is a recognition, is, is, the, is the willingness to be part of a community. And as a community, it, one of its inherent gifts is that it helps you review your humanity. Do I think that the state of Israel is inherently perfect all the time? Do I think that nobody can teach us morality and that we're fine and that we're great? Well, if you think that, then you don't want criticism. Then a nation that lives alone is a nation that lives self-satisfied. At its core, I am never self-satisfied. Right, and I think grow, at its I core, no Jew grow. could be self-satisfied. So you know what? So it's actually really quite simple. I'm not talking about the political ramifications of it. I'm saying if I recognize that I, by definition, could always be more than who I am, then criticism is, in, is even regardless, we haven't even yet gotten to whom. Criticism yeah. at its core is a gift. Now, how do we deal with it is a separate question. Even just accepting that basic idea that criticism is a gift goes against the grain of the kind of this polarized moment 
where you know you're either with me or against me and and so just letting go of that and reconnecting to the idea in our tradition that criticism is an act of love is a really important idea at least it could be an act of love you know i'm reminded of something your father made famous when he said that you know the person who criticized israel should try to criticize israel like a mother and not like a mother-in-law right meaning that that the, the mother does so hoping for the best wishing, you know, doing it out of love. And the, the mother-in-law, you know, forgive me all the mother-in-laws out there, I know it's a terrible kind of stereotype, is doing it a little bit more to point out the faults than it is as an act of kind of genuine hope to grow together. I don't think it matters. Our return to sovereignty is not ignoring our humanity, but requires us to reconnect it to even more. Because now we have power, and now we could do harm. As a powerless people, we're always a moral people. So I don't need that much criticism. The Jews, we are the critics of the world because we can't harm anybody. We can't do anything. As we talked the last time, now that we return to power, we could cause harm and evil. And if we could cause harm and evil, I, it's essential. I don't care from my mother-in-law, my father-in-law, from this. It doesn't matter, as you said. It doesn't matter where it comes from. Zionism is, and it has nothing to do even with a desire to be an, a light unto the nations. I don't need to be a, it's just, I, I've returned to Israel to be something outstanding. And yeah, any time I could have criticism, that's an opportunity for me to take one step forward. Yeah. So, I mean, this idea of criticism as an opportunity for growth, it sounds good. I'm going to push back against it just a little bit to, to, to lay out a slightly different point along this spectrum. And it, it, there is something that sounds or could sound a little bit naive about that position, right? In other words, that I'm constantly open to criticism. In the reality, in the realpolitik of this world, you know, first of all, very few countries um, spend a lot of their time taking seriously their criticism. There's a lot of self-righteousness out there. And very often the criticism is designed to kind of make yourself look better, to weaken the other country. And isn't there a place... Uh, at least in the in the reality of the world we live in, to say, you know what, before I take seriously the criticism, let's have a reciprocal relationship. Let me let me criticize you a bit too. If I can take your criticism seriously, if this moral engagement is a two-way street, right, for example, or if at least I point out your hypocrisy before I then discuss your criticism, something that shows that I'm not easily, that easily pushed around. You know what I mean? I, I do. I hear you. I hear you. And I one of Michael Walzer speaks of the fact that the social critic always has to be an insider. That for you to be able to listen, so I don't know if it's a mother or a mother-in-law, but it's somebody who um, is invested, um, cares about you. Um, it's true, criticism from an enemy is, 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 is not effective and doesn't really work. There has to be a sense of camaraderie and care yeah. for criticism to work. When I say that I embrace criticism, I'm not speaking about how every single moment that Israel has to sit down and review. No, you embrace criticism and then you decide which one you listen to, which one you don't. But the notion that criticism is inherently irrelevant. That's, my problem is, is before we decide which criticism we wanna to listen to, which one we don't and how much we wanna care about it, we, we immunize ourselves. Yeah. Um, it's that immunization that I think is inherently counter to our decision to be a nation in the world. Right, to return to history. Let, let's let's uh, ask whether we should make a distinction, though, between the kind of internal Jewish conversation, like criticism 
from Jews and criticism from the nations That's of the a world. That's a big one. Do you, do you make a distinction there? Now, for me, that distinction is a really big one. The embracing of criticism and then filtering it is an inherent part of our decision to be a sovereign nation amongst the nations of the world. Not to be a sovereign nation on our own island, but to live in the midst of a world and to have trade and relationships and shared culture and learning. Our decision to listen to criticism from Jews is not an inherent part of our sovereignty. It's an inherent part of the Jewish state's commitment to being the homeland of the Jewish people. Now, whenever a Jew criticizes, it falls into the same notion as any critic. I want to learn from it. But there's something much deeper. When Jews who don't live in Israel embrace in an act of criticism, I embrace that criticism not merely for its significance for me, but when I recognize that Israel is theirs also. Mm-hmm. I have to, I can't say it's yours. I can't say care about it. I can't say I want to be part of your identity. Now, it's not that we are, we are part of the nations of the world. You're part of me. And that means that what you think about me is essential for my ability to have that type of relationship. Here, maybe, that's, that's the embracing of what the mother or family. I have to listen to what a Jew says, even if I disagree with it. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about limits to what it might be, yes. and those are important. But the criticism is of, of exceptional importance for our mission as a Jewish state, as the homeland of the Jewish people. Because I could say that Israel is the homeland of the Jewish people. And I can make a declaration and talk all about it. But it is only if you feel connected to the state of Israel. I can't legislate your relationship to Israel. I can aspire for it. I can teach it. But I can't dictate it. And the only way Israel will be the homeland of the Jewish people is if there's a very profound, wide field of conversation going back between Jews in Israel and Jews in North America or around the world back and forth. Let's try, I mean, I I hear that view. In other words, part of Israel's mission as a state of the Jewish people means that what Jewish Jews say around the world has to matter, right? There is this counter push to that, that you hear sometimes from Israelis, sometimes even from pro-Israel people outside of Israel, that there's got to be a, a fundamental distinction between the ways in which Israelis have these conversations that pay the price of these decisions you know, that, that classic argument, if you're not sending your children to the army and so on and so forth, where do we say that criticism needs to have limits on it, if at all? Like, what don't I take into account when I take seriously the fact that Israel's, at the end of the day, the future of Israel and its citizens is going to, in some ways, be decided by Israel and, and, be, and the price will be paid by Israelis, the benefits and the costs of it, you know? Well, what do you think about this? Can't we talk about criticism and its significance separate from what I have to do about it? As a sovereign state, at the end of the day, the Knesset, those who vote are going to decide. But what we're engaged in is trying to silence criticism instead of talking about our rights to which criticism we listen to and to what degree. It's where we silence it. See, I think there's two points. One is that we have to embrace not just the right of people to criticize, the significance of criticism as a potential for my moral growth, and I'll listen to what I'll listen to. We also have to embrace engagement with Israel because without an engagement with Israel, this is not the homeland of the Jewish people, it's the homeland of Israelis. Now, how on a functional, practical level 
I respond to it is a separate question, but we're out there silencing people. You know, it's striking to me, Donnell, that Beinart's article, uh, you know, I've seen the kind of explosion it's caused in the intra-American Jewish conversation, at least those who are engaged in this issue. It's had hardly any coverage in Israel from what I've seen, right? And I think there's a flip side to this, which isn't about how you, um, whether we should or shouldn't take criticism and how to take it. It's how do you do effective criticism, right? How is the criticizer maximize the chances there are maybe one of the ways to think about the limits to criticism and not necessarily about limiting the criticism but giving advice as to how criticism can be heard rather than not heard right it's not about just to be clear it's not about your point that openness to criticism is a sign of strength arguably it's a capacity to grow in fact the idea of silence in criticism one could argue is a sign of weakness in a certain extent but there's a flip side to this. If you want to be part of this conversation and, you know, the kind of social critic you talked about from Michael Walzer, then there has to be an insider element to you in the way you express that criticism, right? In the ability to see complexity, in nuance, in to be able to mix some positive with some negative, simply to be heard. Otherwise, you can criticize. It's just not going to have any impact, right? You're right. Now, in this case, like I would love it in, in, a, in a future podcast, we should deal with the, with the specifics of Beinhardt's arguments. But I don't think he, the criticism that he engaged in was, was methodologically illegitimate. I might disagree with its content. I don't think he didn't, he, he expressed it as an act of love, he, he, where he published, I think that was legitimate. But, I would, but in that context, I wanna add one more point here, which I think we have to think about in this meta conversation about criticism. At this moment, it is viable and legitimate to say, I don't wanna have a relationship with Israel. It's viable and legitimate to say, I no longer back a Jewish state. You can make that statement. The statement is, um, is then discussed. It's not discounted. It's something, what does it mean? Is it it's legitimate? Rare, but okay. Right, fair enough, fair enough. But at least, it, put it this way, in North America, it is a viable position that needs to be responded to. I'm all about boundaries. I wrote my PhD on it. It's always, you know, I have a whole, all these theories about it, what it should be, shouldn't be. I've spent so many years talking about boundaries. There are times when I think boundaries aren't helpful. And I'm wondering whether right now, when it is so easy to walk away from Israel, whether we should stop talking about the boundaries of criticism, the legitimate criticism, how it was made, who did it. Like, as you said beforehand, it doesn't really matter. Right now, the most significant question is who's even talking? Who's even engaging? You know, if we're going to start policing, there are moments where policing is important. I'm getting the feeling that we're coming closer to a moment where policing is dangerous. Conversations about who's allowed to criticize, when they're allowed to criticize. And that's why I like to distinguish between the criticism I want to listen to and the one I don't. Like, I'm not going to listen to any criticism which is going to involve Israel going to war, when I should go to war. I'm sorry. When my kids are going to be put on, in harm's way, that's going to be decided by my elected officials. Not interested. Doesn't mean you can't talk. It doesn't mean that I might not listen to it and be influenced by it. But the one who's going to be influenced, it's whether I am open to it or not. Right now, Tal, I really think that we're living in such a polarized moment where we're silencing each other and canceling each other as we talked about. Right now, we have to model you know, that we I talk. I remember, I remember, Daniel, you, you, you tell this story at the Hartman Institute often about, about this professor who said that, you know, telling you what I think is not telling you what to do. And that seems to me a very, very, 
Yeah, that seems to be a very critical distinction here for that for for a healthy dialogue. You know, we uh, Israelis can often get very anxious when they hear someone criticizing, as if they're being dictated to as to what to do. But right. if we can turn the volume down on that and say, "Okay, you said something," whether I act on that or not, and eventually that's going to be my decision. Right. But I'm open to that discussion, and I think that the resilience of a society or the health of a society might depend on its ability to make that distinction, right? Because, because the ability to make that distinction is, first of all, an ability to be kind of comfortable in your own skin, comfortable enough with the way you make decisions and your own view, that you don't feel that the very raising of an alternative view is dangerous. I don't know if, if positions that involve dissolving the Jewish state fall in that category, to be honest, as a view. Right, but we I, can I, deal with that one. Yeah, we might deal, but... But, but broadly speaking, when we're thinking about Israel's policies in different directions, nobody is dictating. I mean, if it's not the idea that it's dictation, there are other aspects of this we probably won't have time to go into when that criticism is used to kind of lobby governments or lobby people to pressure Israel. Well, that's a tricky area, which we didn't get to today. This goes back to the mother issue. Let's leave aside the mother-in-law, because I have a great okay. mother-in-law. Uh, uh, and she might be watching this. So uh, let's um, let's go back. You know, you know, you see I have a great mother-in-law too. I better good. We let's for the record, we've all said that. Good, we're we're good. Which mother-in-law wouldn't love Utah? You know how? Like I, I know because my kids are a little older now. The moment where every time I said I would say something, it would create a a, a crisis. Oh, Abba didn't like me. Did this, why you? And at some point, you just get like I talk. And it's your job to decide. <laughs> you're, you're married. You're adults. You decide what you want to listen to. I think that there is where we have this, we've infused the conversation with attention instead of seeing criticism as an opportunity. Yeah. You are sovereign. You're not just sovereign over your state. You're sovereign over what you will listen to. But to silence the voices just minimizes. And I would say, yeah, I hear you. I, I your potential say, for growing. I want to bring Ilana in here and, and just to say, you know, precisely because you're sovereign to listen, you can allow yourself to listen because at the end of the day, you're sovereign, right? That's right. And, and I think that, you know, we, we've talked a little bit uh, in this discussion about how, in, how much, how important it is it for Israel, how it is seen by others, right? By Jews, by other nations. That's one part of it. The other part of it is the, from the perception of those who are criticizing, how, how um, much does it come out of love? How much is it part of a relationship so that that criticism can be heard? Maybe you have a listen, an obligation to listen, um, but you also, as a criticizer, have an obligation to, to, to put that criticism in a way that might have a chance of being heard. And, and that I think there are two parts of that equation. Elana, how do you want to enlighten us with a Jewish text that talks about this issue? We'd love to hear it. Thanks for being with us. For sure. Well, it's really interesting. You basically, the two of you just gave a masterclass on the Jewish idea of rebuke. So I'm going to do something else, which is I want to bring in this point that you're making of not just which ideas count, but whose ideas count. And I also want to get back to what you introed with, Tal, about making a Kiddush Hashem, God's involvement in this conversation, because we've been very horizontal. There's another piece to this triangle, right? So I want to start with a verse from Deuteronomy, from Devarim, that talks about the importance of doing that which is good and right in the eyes of God. Hatov v'hayashar. And notice that that verse says, do that which is good and right in the eyes of God. So great, just figure out what it is that you think God says. And 
then you're going to do it. But this is a moment where the rabbis actually argue and say, wait a second, just God, who else might be involved in this conversation? And so we have a really fantastic discussion between Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Yishmael in the rabbinic literature on this very verse in which they deeply disagree. And I want to read it to you. It goes like this. When you do that which is good and right, here comes Rabbi Akiva's position. That which is good in the eyes of heaven, but that which is right in the eyes of humanity. These are the words of Rabbi Akiva. I'm going to pause us right there. Rabbi Akiva adds the eyes of humanity, which is not in the verse. He adds it in. It's not good enough to be that which you think God tells you to do. It has to be something that passes the smell test among human beings. And then he adds an intertext of a verse from Proverbs to basically try to like put it in there, find grace and seichel tov, common sense and goodness in the eyes of God and humanity. So I just want to start with that. What does it mean to look at a verse and say, the verse says that which is good in the eyes of God. And I'm going to say, wait a second, got to make sure that human beings can see this, right? And think that this passes some tests. It's a little different, Daniel then that question of what makes us a sovereign state, it's actually what determines what we should do, what our morality is. The second half is Rabbi Yishmael. He says, that which is right, that is good and right in the eyes of heaven. And this is the For Heaven's Sake podcast. I'm going to give it a do. What matters, he says, is what God thinks is good. What God thinks is right. You can't be beholden to the pressures and the opinions of human beings. So he was the first person that said um shmum was Rabbi Shmuel? Either that or he might say it lacks integrity to constantly be placating others or pandering to others, right? I mean, that's the flip side of the coin. So that's the frame that I want to offer. And when I see that frame, I say to myself, you know, it's really interesting because I could see the same people saying, I'm Rabbi Akiva, and I'm Rabbi Ishmael, I'll tell you why. What is it that God tells us to do in the Middle East? You've got some people who say God tells us we need all the land. That's what God commands us. You have other people who are saying God commands us about peace. You have other people say God commands us to be a light unto the nation. So what, what is God saying to you exactly? And the who? Who are the, who are the people whose eyes this needs to be good in front of? Is it yourselves? Right, Tal, you and I once talked about this where you said, I need to be convinced that what I'm doing is okay and is the right thing, right? That needs to matter. It can't just come from something outside. Is it people who already agree with you? Is it the people who are going to have to experience the loss and the risk as a result? And so I think in some ways, what we have here in this conversation is not just a discussion about rebuke. It's actually trying to figure out Who's my team? Who helps me figure out what the right thing to do is? And in that situation, you may, pe- you may have people suggesting that they have the same teammate, but their teammate says something different because that's the way they understand them. See, but, but Ilana, how, I want to ask you a question. How does a very common Jewish understanding that what God wants is dependent on we need people to, depends on who says, that part of our challenge as Jews is to discover what God wants, and we discover what God wants in a Beit Midrash. We don't discover it in a prophetic moment where I sit down with, my, with the text and my belly button and in my, myself and say, okay, now I own God. It's, it's in the Beit Midrash 
that, that so, the fullness of God. So maybe that Beit Midrash requires that level of criticism even to know what God wants. It's not, what God wants is not insulated. What do you I think? I totally agree with you. But I think the question is, who do you invite into that Beit Midrash? You can actually read Rabbi Akiva's position as saying, look, your Beit Midrash says, this is what God wants. But there are people outside who, when they see that this is what you think God wants, they're going to look at you and say, I don't know how you came up with that. And that matters. And it's also possible that somebody might say, expand your bait midrash from the beginning. Don't just wait until you come out of, you know, your conclave with the white smoke and then find out what people think, right? You have to have this conversation a little bit earlier. And I think that's also kind of interesting all these sort of like open letters and let me make a statement to the New York Times about what I am and what I'm not. There's there's an indication that we're actually not in the same baby trash. It means the conversation is not happening where it should. It's happening in a reactionary kind of way. Unless that's an example of worrying about humanity. There is a conversation about what God wants, which is you're in a bait midrash, and then you have to decide who's in your bait midrash. How do we determine what is at the core of our value system and it represents the best of who we are. Important is a search for truth. That's maybe one way of looking at the eyes of God is a search for truth. And I would posit that that search for truth requires other people. Now, then you might ask, as you did, okay, what's the nature of that conversation? But in the eyes of humanity, that happens in the public sphere. It is in the public sphere. So maybe part of the discourse about which Tal was raising beforehand, where is a criticism made? How is it made? That might be the difference between in the eyes of God and the eyes of humanity. I see it in a tension between, in a way, persuading yourself or your own community in the justice of your cause, and then being open to measuring it to, to the eyes of others as well, right? So maybe the Beit Midrash, here maybe I'm, I'm pushing your, your limits a little bit, Ilana, but the Beit Midrash I see as a kind of internal Jewish conversation, maybe an internal Israeli conversation, do we feel it? And then there's a, the moment where you say, that's not enough. Because as Daniel said, you know, I'm also on the return to history. I didn't give up on the world. Or if it's an internal Israeli conversation, I didn't, I have a responsibility for what I am to other Jews as well. And so I open that internal conversation up to the possibility that it might change uh, because it matters to me, not just what I think vertically, but what is seen horizontally. Yeah, it's interesting because I wonder in this conversation, we're all Rabbi Akiva people, right? That's that's very clear. No, not exactly, because Rabbi Ishmael has to be there first, right? In other words, I don't get to Rabbi Akiva before I do the Rabbi Ishmael move. My first thing is that I need to be sure that I think that what I'm doing is right, right? I'll tell you an interesting thing. And, you know, sometimes the minutia of the way a text is written, actually, it means a lot, because there's actually another version of this text and in that other version, you have Rabbi Ishmael basically saying that whatever it is that is good in the eyes of God will eventually be good in the eyes of people. And I find that to be really interesting, too, because what does it mean to basically say, you know, look, nobody knows what the right answer is. We're trying our best. We're trying to have integrity. And what we hope is that depending on what this horizon yields, people will come around and say, in the end, that was okay, right? There's something to that also. And you can be cynical about it and say, you don't really care what people think. You're just saying, I'm going right. to do whatever I want and people will agree with me. 
but you can also be aspirational about that in moments right. where you're actually at a crossroads. I think what Rabbi Ishmael pushes us to say, ultimately your pursuit should be the truth. But I don't think that the pursuit of truth requires an insulation from others. The pursuit of truth requires a- The opposite, exactly. Requires of it. Now, so what Rabbi Akiva then says, we need a pursuit of truth to the best of your ability. And then there's another position which says, if you're the only one, I always say this, when people think that Judaism, we have, this is unique. When you have something unique and you're the only one who knows it, as a rule of thumb, it probably is not a value. In other words, if you're the only if you're the only one in the world, so that something about the eyes of humanity that that you have what to learn, not just in your own individual pursuit of truth, but in somebody else's pursuit of truth, yeah. and what are the results that they've came up come up with, and to be able to watch it and to listen, and to have both that internal search with its dynamic of criticism, and the larger cultural um, uh, awareness of truth. But we also know that when it comes to things that feel like they really are part of your, they're your God, in a sense. They're your identity. They're the deepest part of you. It's very hard to say, and I want to hear from your moral universe, which is very different. Like when I talk about what is it that God says, when you ask Israelis what God says, and you ask American Jews what God says, typically you're going to get different answers. That itself is, it's very difficult to be able you know, to find a place but it's to have a joint beat midrash. But it's in that difficulty that greatness is achieved. 100%. Let me uh, come in here. In, in a way, you know, the very idea of this podcast, or for heaven's sake, turns on that claim, right? That part of the pursuit of truth can't be found if you're in your own echo chamber only. And you've got to test it outside. You've got to be willing to, to look for it outside. Now, in a way that involves two, two components here, going back to the, the beginning of this podcast, on the one hand, the idea that we might be a nation that dwells alone or we have to, you know, in Ben-Gurion's language, it matters what we do. There is a component that has to be internal, right? It has to be this, this decision of ourselves we're going to determine it. What our God says matters. There is that process internally that matters. And on the other side of it, there is also the, the light unto the nations component of it, meaning that in this sense of it, what others say and their wisdom and their truth needs to be a relevant part of my conversation. And therefore, I have to be open to it. In a way, I think if you go to one extreme or the other, right? If you say what others don't matter, you are impoverishing your pursuit of truth. But if you care completely about what others say, you are also impoverishing your pursuit of truth because you're not yeah. asking what your own moral compass requires. And yeah. so, so Rabbi Ishmael in both versions uh, and Rabbi Akiva, you know, in truly in for heaven's sake, Pascal, Elu Elu, both of these are the words of the living God in some basic way. Uh, so Donil, thank you, Ilana. Uh, thank you for this lovely and really interesting uh, conversation. Um, Thanks for listening to our show. For heaven's sake is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute and the I Engage program. This episode was, was edited by David Svi Kalman. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by So Called. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online at shalomhartman.org. We want to know what you think about this show so you can write to us at for heaven's sake at shalomhartman.org. Subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next time. Doniel, Ilana, all the best. Shabbat shalom. Thank you. Shabbat nice shalom. being with you.